The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. And welcome to the Urbanist Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. Standing in for Andrew Tuck today, I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up... There's some irony in the fact that we've been talking about global warming for 60 years, but we're not talking about heat. And it is silent and invisible, and we need to better understand it. How hot is too hot in our cities? While average temperatures rise around the globe as a result of climate change, our urban areas and the heat islands that they create are often those that suffer the most. But they also could be the areas that are most well-equipped to deal with the issue. So how can a metropolis measure and mitigate the effects of a sweltering summer heat wave? Today we assess the challenges ahead and come up with some countermeasures for the city as the mercury continues to climb. That is all ahead, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Marcus Hippi. This summer in the Northern Hemisphere saw record-breaking heat waves from Asia to North America to Europe. The much-discussed urban heat island effect also means that temperatures within the city limits tend to climb even higher than those in their surrounding suburbs. Situations in the Southern Hemisphere aren't immune to these extreme heat events either, often experiencing the effects even worse. The stark picture has left many cities facing a growing challenge. How can they keep their citizens happy, healthy and productive when temperatures soar? The social and economic effects of extreme heat is a topic that has recently been addressed in a report from the Atlantic Council's Ash Rock Resilience Centre. Hot Cities, Chilled Economies looks at the effects heat is having on 12 cities around the world in order to paint a picture of our potentially harrowing road ahead. Earlier this week, this show's regular host Andrew Tuck was joined down the line by Cathy Boffman McLeod, the director of the Atlantic Council's Arched Rock Resilience Centre, to discuss some of the key findings. Andrew began by asking what they were looking to achieve when they set out to write this report. We are looking at helping the world better understand the costs of heat. And there's some irony in the fact that we've been talking about global warming for 60 years, but we're not talking about heat. And it is silent and invisible, and it needs a deeper understanding where we don't have the data that we need. People are not aware of how impactful it is. It's killing more people than any other climate-driven hazard, and we need to better understand it. And the people least responsible for causing global warming 
are at the end of the spear on the impacts of it. People working at bottom rungs of the economic ladder. And we also acknowledge the city as a place that is exacerbating heat with the built environment, with the urban heat island effect. And so we sought with this analysis to better understand the dynamics of the city combined with increasing heat and bulging populations as families are running into cities looking for economic opportunities when climate change is impacting rural life and farming. It's urgent and we just don't understand it enough. And so we wanted to dive into 12 cities in different settings in the global north and the global south to really understand it, raise the awareness, and then identify solutions to help protect people from this growing deadly threat. Just a a first thing to get clear in people's minds, because we may imagine that as the temperature rises, everybody feels the heat in the same way. But your report points out a few things. You know, One, where you sit according to wealth will impact you. Even your gender may impact how much the heat affects you. Could you just explain for our, our listeners how not everybody experiences heat in the same way? Heat does not impact people equally. And women and girls are disproportionately impacted and close to 80% of the people displaced by climate change are women, and 70% of the 1.3 billion people living in poverty are women. And so we know that women are exposed in lots of the outdoor labor markets. There are construction workers in India and bead makers, and women are responsible for getting water, and women are 14 times more likely to die in a disaster. And that's a lot about what they wear or being responsible for the livestock or for the family or for protecting the food. There are lots of factors, but heat absolutely does not affect people equally. Now, you looked, as you said, at cities both in the global north and south and a range running from a big established metropolis like London in the global north to Dakar, for example, a developing city with a huge amount, as you've hinted, of informal settlement. But were there some unifying elements that you came up with as you looked at the challenges for cities? The unifying observation is that people least responsible for climate change are bearing the brunt of it and that heat is costing workers everywhere something. And if these 12 cities are representative, and we think that they are, of other cities across the world, we know that heat is costing trillions. We don't yet have the quantification on that number, but we are showing last summer that worker productivity losses in the United States were $100 billion in 2020. And that grows to half a trillion dollars in 2050. And 18% of that loss is disproportionately borne to Black and Hispanic workers in the South. As we look at these challenges, you do throw up some possibilities of things that we can do. Obviously, the the big thing to do is, is to get a grip with climate change. But when we look at the things that individual cities can do, what kinds of solutions did you come up with? Well, One of the biggest solutions and most cost-effective solutions are nature-based solutions. So urban forests and green spaces and water features. Also cooler surfaces, lighter colored surfaces are cost-effective. Green roofs, cool roofs and surfaces. Policies that change what we wear when we work. There are policies that are tax incentives for investing in these types of cooling practices. 
And so all sorts of solutions exist. There's a lot of evidence based on what we can do. And the opportunities are immense. Part of the challenge is the awareness. We're still getting people and getting their minds around the fact that this is so deadly. You still have people thinking that this hot day is a great day to go to the beach. And a lot of the imagery around heat is about the beach. And so when you think about what does heat look like, you often see images of people at the beach and it's conflicting, you know, is it dangerous or are we going out to the beach? And so we've got to get over the hump of thinking that hot weather is always great. In some places it's welcome, but in many places and many times it's quite deadly. It's fascinating your report. I, I think it's a wake-up call for people who are in civic government because you realize that you can't just kind of swap this aside and say, hey, there's some sunny days, people work a little bit less. You really do document the, the economic impact on cities, but also that for people running the infrastructure in these cities, whether it's rail, buses, there's again another deficit that comes with heat. Could you explain to us a little bit about that? This study looks at the loss from worker productivity from heat. And that means the worker themselves loses money and their contribution to the economy of what they make or the service they provide. And so this is just one aspect of heat's impact. And when you think about infrastructure like airplanes, they can't fly at 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 48 degrees Celsius. Your iPhone or your smartphone shuts down at 95 degrees or 35 degrees Celsius. And the rail lines are melting. I mean, we saw lots of that last summer and the summer before. And so this doesn't capture any of that. And it also doesn't capture the cost to healthcare. And so we know that this is having massive economic impacts. And we're just beginning to scrape the surface of what these costs are, both to humans and to the economy. And tell me also, the other interesting thing about your report is you you stress that often the solution is turning to nature, the use of tree canopies, for example, to shade roads and to not have hard surfaces, but to have greener surfaces. And again, you point out that often in poorer communities, that there's a lack of tree canopy. We tend to see them in, in leafier, wealthier neighbourhoods. Is this another thing that city governments need to be thinking about more is turning to nature to find a fix? Yes. And so often we have, and this gets back to the inequalities of heat, so many cities are devoid of green space and urban tree canopy. And when you look at maps of cities, oftentimes the map of tree cover is a map of income and race. And so nature is, as I said, cost effective, but also can be a way to address inequality and invest in parts of cities and neighborhoods and communities that have been underserved. And you can cool it, you can clean the air, you can reduce asthma, that reduces trips to the emergency room, you can clean the water this way, you can reduce utility bills, all sorts of benefits that come from using nature. And then there are also some economic strategies where in Freetown, Freetown, the tree town, Mayor Aki Sawyer has a program where people are paid to take care of a specific tree and they have an app where they report on how the tree is doing. So the economic interest is in protecting that tree. And so there are lots of models like that. 
Cathy Boffman McLeod there in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Tuck. Now, as we have just heard, one of the best, easiest and most simple ways cities can reduce heat is by investing in urban tree canopies and shrubs. One city that has taken this to heart is Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. When Mayor Remigus Shimashis introduced a new 12-point design manual for the city, he made sure that on top of that list was greening. In his words, a tree always comes first. Andrew caught up with Mayor Shimashis last week while reporting from Prague and started by asking him about his ambitious plans to plant 100,000 trees and 1 million bushes over the coming years. Starting with the definitions, we speak that what is the street? How wide is the street? The street starts from one building and ends with another building. Sometimes people call the traffic lane for cars street, while pedestrian lanes they treat it as not a street. So I always say that we are not narrowing the street. We are widening pedestrian lanes, we are widening bicycle lanes, we are widening greenery lanes. We are very often introducing parking lanes alongside the streets because it's good for business, it's good for pedestrian security, and it's good for like more cozy streets, so it's not like fighting the cars. And then we are narrowing two wide lanes for cars because it's post-Soviet standard, we have to narrow them to be more safe and more cozy. And speaking about the chi, it's a very tricky issue whether we put this tree in the first place because actually this standard is... I'm a mayor for seven and a half years. It's my third attempt to have, or my fourth attempt to have a good standard for the mobility infrastructure. First was uh, failed, it was about materials for the street. Then we had a very good standard for bicycle routes and we are investing a lot. But then we saw that pedestrians are suffering sometimes because of it and greenery is suffering because, you know, the architects, they draw the straight line for bicycle routes and that, that's it. Then we introduced the pedestrian standard. But again, greenery was suffering because again, straight lines. And what we have now, of course, pedestrian lines and bicycle lines, sometimes they are curved in order to adjust to the trees which are already growing. And it makes the bicycle lanes and pedestrian lanes more cozy, more livable. People like it much more. And of course, we keep greenery. It's an attempt to change the mindset of architects because very often they try to clean the field and then to start creating something new. Or when they start creating the new street, they typically even do not put on the kind of programs where the trees or shrubs are already planted. They just start from scratch. Now we require to take into account existing greenery first and then to adjust to it. And it works. It works perfectly, I must say. One of the other things suggested by lots of cities and by Franz Timmons, who is here from the EU, saying, look, we need a, a city revolution where, you, you know, buildings, they all have some kind of solar panel, for example, attached to them, that they're all generating energy. Is that a realistic dream for a place like Vilnius? I do think that it's very important to invest into renewable energy and the solar panels. I think it's a crucial, important thing, but it will not solve all the problems, of course, because it is very clear that, you know, if for cooling, it works perfectly because, you know, the sun shines, it generates energy and you need to cool. That's okay. For heating, it's vice versa. I mean, you need heating, especially in our latitudes during winter where we have less sun and then the nights are longer, the production from solar panels is very low and also the consumption cycles during the day also doesn't meet uh, solar production because typically during the evening the winter doesn't blow so extensively so no wind energy no solar energy but consumption is very high so i do think that it's also very important to invest in other methods like in adjusting an electricity supply and demand 
And in this case, like uh, slow charging for electric mobiles, I think it's a so much underestimated balancing mechanism that it's even difficult to imagine how underestimated it is. Because, you know, from solar panels, if everything will be covered by solar panels, we will have energy during the daytime of sunny days. So what to do to invest in huge and very expensive batteries, what the European Commission is also doing? Okay, we may do it, but it's also so expensive and it costs so much also to the nature that I don't think that uh, it solves all the problems. So I think all these smart solutions of adjusting and having the different baskets for all energy needs, I think this is the solution. This is the way to go. Remigus Shimash is there speaking to Monaco's Andrew Tuck last week in Prague. One area of the world where heat mitigation has been top of the agenda for some time now is the Gulf states. Cities in the region are consistently some of the hottest on the planet, and some projections paint a picture of almost uninhabitable environments by the second half of the century due to temperature. So it makes sense that the region is also producing some important innovations when it comes to combating sweltering heat. One company hoping to bring more attention to the issue of heat in cities is UAE based FortiGuard. They use a variety of data already available in cities to produce detailed heat maps, allowing city makers and city goers a chance to make more informed decisions. FortiGuard's founder Jay Sadiq joined Andrew earlier this week, and Andrew began by asking Jay to explain a little bit about the mission behind FortiGuard. FortiGuard is an mission to cool cities. We believe what gets measured gets improved and the best solutions come from the understanding of data. We're a data company and we call ourselves outdoor temperature experts using local or different global data sources so we can provide our clients and consumers with hyper-accurate temperature data, whether that is delivered as a heat map or data that can be integrated with different softwares or delivered into different means that urban planners or landscape architects can understand. We want to make sure that all of this temperature is well visualized for decision makers to make use of it. And it's not only for landscape architects or urban planners, but also for city decision makers. So the data really guides them to understand where are those urban heat islands so they can understand as well from where to start, what is causing the problem. And sometimes we provide them with analysis so they can understand the cause of the problem and what would be the best cooling technique or solution as well to provide on the ground so they can cool those areas. You produce a heat map and the client has it, whether, as you say, a a civic government or a developer, they can see that the road that runs through their community, the open spaces are hot and they're much hotter than, say, under a canopy of a tree or under the the shadow of a, a building. What do they then do with that information? For example, you, you, know, you sit in a, a very warm part of the world when somebody says, OK, I can see that the tarmac is 80 degrees. What do they then do with that information? Granular temperature data is very highly associated with demand at city level to prevent weather emergencies, 
and also to correlate it with what's happening when it comes to the consumption of energy today. Temperatures are rising up due to climate change, and then they probably need enough data to understand the utility distribution and how things are happening. Most of our energy goes into cooling buildings, so data is going to help a lot in predicting and visualizing the future of building those infrastructure in place. For small cities where you have small-scale projects, let's say between one to four kilometers square, or sometimes a little bit more, this data can help the urban planner of those cities and the decision makers. One, understand from where to start. Second, put a budget for cooling techniques that we can suggest for them to deploy on the ground. They probably need technicalities that has data-guided solutions for their engineering consultants and landscape architects to design for and baseline across the implementation of those solutions. So we provide them with that. And we also help them supervise the activities across or against different KPIs. So this data becomes a baseline, but also a KPI for them to visualize or to understand how the solution is bringing enhancements to those locations. And is it actually bringing the effect promised as per the design and the protections that Fourigar provided them with at the beginning? And beyond the key performance indexes, you know, just tell me, are you then able to say to somebody who can see that they have from their heat map a problem with a particular building, are you then able to say, look, here's five things you could do. Here's a, a coating that you could put on the building. Here's a way of changing the, the materials on the roof, for example. Are you providing the, the fixes as well at the end of this process? Yes. So we call them cooling insights. We're not engineering consultants. We're a data company. So we tell them through those cooling insights. For instance, you have a building facade made of glass. You have a surface roadway made of light color pavers. The sun exposure is on the building. The surface temperature increases by six degrees Celsius and the ambient temperature increases by three degrees Celsius. This is on a seven meter square granularity. Usually those things are missed missed by not understanding how temperature is rising on those places at this seven meters granularity. We come in, we identify this. Sometimes the solution is very simple. We might ask the client to extend the shade that is already in place so it can cover the sun exposure going into the building facade, one, or change the paver's color from a light color to a dark color, and this would actually solve the problem, or probably change the building facade. So sometimes those solutions are very simple, but you, the decision maker, the landscape architect, or the engineering consultant, they really can't you know, visualize the problem or understand what would be a potential solution unless they have this data. So the cooling techniques could be a lot of different things. We sometimes introduce to clients evaporation and water-based techniques. We sometimes take them through urban green techniques. I mean, everyone knows that we should plant more trees, but what trees to plant, how to plant them, where to plant them intelligently, what water system to use in terms of irrigation systems and so on and so forth, when to use the irrigation systems in terms of time and so on and so forth. All of that can 
can not only save on OPEX, CAPEX, and different elements, but also really cool the surroundings. We also focus a lot on materiality and surface techniques. And we also try to introduce a lot of shade techniques, as we call canopies, whether that is horizontal, attached canopies, curved canopies, vertical canopies, and so on and so forth. Really depending on the situation, on that localized specific area. And more importantly as well, we need to make sure that all of those solutions are combined. Those solutions, they can't work alone. They need to work together so they can actually bring those protected temperatures to cooler levels. Do you think that people are beginning to literally vote with their feet about whether they visit certain places because they're too hot? Yes, absolutely. It's not only the people. You can see this across the government, the city level interest, enterprise and different levels as well. So in Abu Dhabi, for instance, we, of course, incorporated the business here because there's a lot of interest from the government to bring a lot of cooling solutions on the ground and help companies adapt to sustainable practices and report on ESG and different other things. So that is also driving the consumer's interest into understanding how can I make cooler decisions or how can I make more sustainable decisions and what tools can provide me with that. Fortigard was inspired by LA when they wanted to cool the city painting roads in wine. And I've always wanted to call Abu Dhabi City as well. And when we started to talk to the leadership here, communicating what solutions we want to bring into the ground, they were really fascinating. They helped us commercialize what we had as an idea back then to become a solution that goes across a lot of different entities. But they also helped us communicate with the consumers, understanding what would be the demand and how this data could help them make better decisions. And that's why Fortigard decided that we're not only building a solution in Abu Dhabi to Abu Dhabi in the UAE, but also building it for the globe. Jay Sadiq, founder of Fortigard, speaking there with Andrew Tuck. And just before we go, we have heard so far about how extreme heat poses a huge risk for our cities. But what about bringing heat to those areas that are more experienced with combating the cold? As the winter approaches, more and more cities are trying to find solutions to how to heat up their homes and buildings. And one urban area with an innovative approach in the works is Helsinki. This Nordic capital doesn't rely on gas for household heating, so it is important to find alternative sources of warmth as it works towards a carbon neutral goal by 2035. This is where Helen, the municipality's energy provider, comes in. They are working on a new 400 million euro project that wants to harness heat from seawater in the Baltic and bring it to homes around Helsinki. Timo Altonen is the senior vice president of energy platform and production solutions at Helen and he tells us more. It's a huge and important project for us. The total budget will be roughly 1 billion euros. And we are currently doing the plans to build a 15 kilometer, which is roughly 10 miles long tunnel to the sea. And that way will reach the 50 meters deep seawater where the seawater is warm enough throughout the winter. So we need first a tunnel 
actually two ways. So one way it's kind of inlet and then the other way we discharge water. And then we need heat pump system, which will be located in the center of Helsinki called Salmisaari. And from there, we pump the heat to the district heat network. So two big kind of infrastructure systems. Most winters, the sea will be totally frozen, but when we go deep enough, there water will be warm enough. And actually we need the water to be at least two degrees Celsius, and then we can extract the heat from the water. So the discharge water will be roughly 0.5 degrees. There's a, a lot of collaboration. And for example, in the past, the city of Helsinki arranged this Helsinki Energy Challenge competition, and that aimed to find new solutions to sustainable ways to create the heat in the city of Helsinki. And Helen's team's expert was one part of this review board. And we are currently also collaborating with the winning solutions parties. I think that this kind of district heat network and the capacity and widespread of that one is quite unique. So 90% of the homes and commercial buildings are heated through district heating system in Helsinki. And I think that the district heat network is one of the biggest in Europe. Helen is 100% city-owned company, so that actually helps to set the common goals and combine the kind of the collaboration in different levels. We are planning to be carbon neutral in 2030 already, and we are already have a strong plans and actually executing already those plans. So we are taking in operation and a bioheating plant in Warsaw, which is the state of the art unit. Actually, it's a hybrid power plant where we utilize also heat pumps to get all possible heat from the biomass. And on top of that one, we have a strong fleet of heat pumps. So basically we use the sewage water, which comes from the city and extract heat from that one. And we are aiming to double that capacity during the next year. And then we have air heat pumps in the program. We have different data centers where we extract heat, electric boilers, huge heat energy storage systems which be in fully operation during this winter. And that only that heat storage system can actually store heat for weekly use of 20,000 homes in the capital. Timo Aaltonen, Senior Vice President of Energy Platform and Production Solutions at Helen there. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlo Terabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here is Billy Idol with Hot in the City. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Hot in the City.